Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God as we return to the Gospel of John. I'll be reading the first 17 verses of chapter 13. These are the words of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing now. Heavenly Father, this text before us reveals the, hearts of your, the heart of your Son and your heart toward us. Open our eyes and hearts to receive your mercy, to be changed by you, to become like you, like Jesus, as we meditate upon these words. We ask that you would do so by means of your Holy Spirit and in his power, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Oftentimes on the first Sunday of the new year, we'll bring to you a message on the state of the church, and I'm not uh, avoiding that. I'll actually be trying to apply this verse, this section into that, um, into that idea as we, as we conclude this sermon, but I wanted to return to the Gospel of John this morning as well. Having concluded the book of signs, you remember I said that the first 11 chapters of John are the book of signs, seven signs that John particularly chooses. Almost all of them are uh, only found in the gospel of John, not in the synoptics at all, with only a couple exceptions. But he chooses seven signs particularly to reveal who Jesus is, that he is the son of God, and that we should believe on him. That's what we're told at the end of chapter 20. We go from the book of signs to what is known as the book of glory. It's all going to be speaking about the glory that Jesus is about to enter into. We'll see it in his prayers, in his discourses. We'll see it in the discussions that are going on. The glory of Jesus Christ is revealed in his crucifixion, in this Passion Week that is, is recorded here. In fact, we're already, in, in, after the triumphal entry, as we get to chapter 13, we really are just to the last few hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Chapters 13 through 17 cover teachings and discourses and prayers of Jesus found almost exclusively in John and exclude much of the events covered in the synoptics about the details of the Last Supper, his prayer at Gethsemane. Um, a lot of those details are not found in the Gospel of John. And much of what you're going to be reading as you go through chapters 13 through 17 are only found in the Gospel of John. John is emphasizing certain things, the glory of Christ, the unity that he has with the Father, and the unity that he intends to give to us with him and with his Father. You can see this over and over as we go through the chapters. As we enter into this particular day that is, is taking place, for Jesus, he's about to experience the most horrific hours of his life, and he knows it. 
He knows what is before him. He's been telling the, the disciples all, uh, for, for uh, many days, many weeks, many months now that he, they are on their way to Jerusalem. You see this in the other synoptic gospels. He's on the way to Jerusalem. He is going to be betrayed. He is going to be turned over, crucified, and then he is going to uh, rise again from the dead. He knows what's before him. And yet John begins this section by saying in the midst of this, he loved them to the end. He loved the disciples to the end, the disciples who were all going to desert him. He loved the disciple that was going to betray him. He loved the disciples and he gives himself to them. And here's, here's what I think comes out of this passage that I think is so important for us to see. Our flesh sees times of trials and, and hardship as excuses to take care of self. But Jesus teaches and exemplifies that times of trials and hardship are the stage for loving others. It is not something that our flesh will see. It is not something that we will turn to naturally. Just as we saw through the book of signs and over and over again that when there was difficulties in other people's lives, when God brings trials, when God brings difficult, um, when sicknesses, when God brings um, all kinds of problems into people's lives, this is the stage for the glory of Christ to be revealed. So we also begin to see in this, in this section that when trials are brought to us personally, it is a stage for us to bring in glory to God as we turn from our trials, in the midst of our trials, to love and serve others. Verse, the first three verses really emphasizes what Jesus knew, what Jesus knew as he come, came in. Look at these three verses and, and notice all of the things that Jesus is certain of. This is going to be important. Because we need to be certain of such things. Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that his hour had come. The cross was right before him. Jesus knew that he was about to depart from this world. He knew that his time at this world was coming to an end. And he knew that he was going to the Father, who he had come from and now would be returning to. Jesus knew that he had, he had loved his disciples to the end. He had not made no mistakes in his ministry. He had loved his disciples all the way to the end. He knew the devil had put in Judas to betray him. It was no surprise. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands as well, that he had, that, that he had received all that the Father had given him, that, that the work that was about to be accomplished was going to be completely efficacious, completely triumphant, completely successful. Jesus knew he had come from God and was going to God. He knew his unity with the Father. He knew that he had been sent by the Father. He knew that he was in the will of the Father, and he knew he was returning to the Father. It would seem that Jesus has every reason, really, to stop thinking about his disciples. His three, year, three years of ministry is done. He's, he can focus now on the one act that needs to be accomplished, the, the, the most horrific and painful act that he's going to have to go through. He, he, could, he could say to his disciples, I've done all I can for you now. I, I need to go and take care of me. I need to go be prepared for what's about to take place for me. I, I finished all of the work that I've given for you. And he does exactly the opposite. He does exactly the opposite. Jesus instead doubles down on giving himself to them. Four chapters will be recorded for us of his speaking and teaching and praying for them. In the midst of this, this, this forthcoming trial that is coming before him. And the point, the point is that faithful, a faithful life of devotion to the Lord brings forth a confidence. A faithful life of devotion to the Lord brings forth a confidence not shattered, not distracted by circumstances that God brings into our lives. A life of devotion before the Lord brings forth a confidence in the midst of whatever circumstances, not to be shattered by any of those circumstances, that God is in our midst, that God has loved us to the end, that God is at work in us perfectly, and, and an ability to then continue on in walking with him faithfully, giving ourselves to others. Walking in obedience with faith that God has given you that God has given you all things brings confidence to humble oneself, to forget about oneself. Having confidence and faith that God has given you all things and that God has given us all things allows us to humble ourselves. That is to stop thinking about us, about our needs, about our trials, about our difficulties, 
to stop grasping for my own needs to be taken care of, and instead to give oneself away for the sake of others. That's what Jesus knew, and then here's what Jesus did, verses 4 and 5. He rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Um, foot washing was a common act of hospitality and was usually performed by a slave. Uh, if not a slave, then by the lowest member of a household. And so as Jesus gets up, we're not sure why there wasn't a slave or a servant in this house. Remember, uh, the other Gospels tell us that, that Jesus sends his disciples to go and get a place for them to be able to have this dinner. Maybe they arrived so quickly, and maybe there's so many of them. Whatever the reason, nobody has washed their feet, and they are now at this, uh, at this supper, reclining at this supper. And Jesus gets up, and he takes off his garments, and he, he girds himself with a, 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 a towel of a slave. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet, and then with that towel to dry their feet. A, 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 a huge act of humility. And a great act of hospitality, of honoring guests, of honoring those who are in. Who should be honoring whom in this situation? Right? The disciples should be honoring Jesus. And Jesus humbles himself from his station and instead honors his guests at his, at his dinner. He honors his guests and he serves them like a slave. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this as a sign of humility and honor, washing one another's feet. And in Genesis 18, this is what Abraham does when the three, the, the three men, probably two of them angels, one of them um, a, uh, a theophany of, of God himself. And, and when, they come to, to, when they come to Abraham, he, he rushes to wash their feet and then prepare a meal for them. Lot does the same thing for the two angels that come into his city at that time in chapter 19. Chapter 24, when um, the servant of Abraham is sent to get a, um, a wife for Isaac, that servant enters into um, uh, the home of, um, of Rebekah's uh, father, and, and, and immediately he is served, a servant of Abraham is served by the servant and honored as an honored guest with foot washing. That is what goes on. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, Abigail says as she comes to, to David that, that she would be a servant and would wash his feet. Again, showing a sign of humility, a sign of honor to him. Jesus was simply doing what had been an Old Testament pattern, but also he was doing what Paul would then instruct all of us to do as well. And I'd like you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 for just a moment. Here's a, probably the passage that connects what Jesus is doing to what we are to be doing. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he's saying if you have these things, if you've received these things from Christ, kind of like I said, that confidence that God is with you, the affections of Christ, the consolation of Christ, the comfort and love of Christ, the fellowship that you enjoy in Christ with God the Father and with brothers and sisters in Christ. He then says in verse 2, fulfill my joy. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, the same love that you've received from Christ, the same honor that you've received from Christ, the same humility in his service that you've received from Christ. Have the same love being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, there's the humility. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus humbled himself and humbled himself even to the point of death. But here in chapter 13, he gives us a picture of that, a symbol, a foretelling of that, of becoming a slave for others, a servant to all others, of humbling himself, of taking off a garb, of removing his robe, his robe of authority, his robe of lordship, and instead getting upon his knees 
and washing the dirt off the disciples' feet. So then there's lots of concern and lots of discussion about what are these symbols of washing, of the washings in verses 6 through 11. And the back and forth with Peter, that interchange with Peter, helps us to see what Peter then did not understand. In verse 7, it says, Jesus saying, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter didn't, and the disciples didn't grasp exactly what Jesus was doing, exactly what he meant by all of it. This should remind us that in trials and blessings that the Lord gives, we're often unable to judge what exactly God is doing. Why has God given me these things? Why is God blessing me? Hebrews 11.8, in Hebrews 11.8, we're reminded of God's call to Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. How oftentimes God's blessings come to you, but you don't know yet they're a blessing. What you have to do is walk in obedience to what he has told you to do. You have to walk in obedience. You may have to leave things that you love, things that you uh, enjoy, things that have given you comfort, and you're gonna have to leave them because God has called you to something else. Has he called you to blessing? He's call, in, in confidence, Abraham goes, and in confidence, Jesus is able to go, walk away from his life. In confidence, he's able to trust that God has great blessing for us. Well, when God gives us trials and blessings, um, we oftentimes are, are unable to judge. We don't know for sure all that God has for us. And we oftentimes don't know why. Why has he done this for me? Although we particularly deal with this in trials, we should realize it with blessings as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did, in, did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? If you received a blessing, if you received a blessing, you, the, the answer is not for you to pat yourself on the back and think, you know, I earned this from God. Look at what he's given me. No, it's to realize you received it. It's all gift. Anything that you have, anything that God has given you, all the blessings, count your blessings. What blessings has God given you? They're all gift. You haven't earned any of them. Don't boast in them. Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord's good gifts to you. The disciples did not deserve to have their feet washed, and certainly not by Jesus. But gift was given. An amazing gift was given, pointing to an even more amazing gift that was about to come. But of course, really, the time that we really wonder what God is doing and why God is doing it is much less when blessings come. Unfortunately, that's the, that's the time we really should be practicing. Practicing, considering, and trusting that God has given the good thing and that God has given it simply out of his good kindness to us, building us up, providing for us. That's the easy time to give thanks. That's the easy time to rejoice always. That's the easy time to, to, to give glory back to God and remember him and to wonder why is he doing this with great wonder and anticipation. What's much harder is when he gives the trials, isn't it? When he gives the trials and the hardships, when the answers to prayer don't go the way you want. And then you're, then you're wondering, what is God doing? What is he up to? And why? Why is he doing this? Did I do something to deserve this? And, and all, of the, all of the questions circle around you. But in trials, obedience brings clarity and faith. In the midst of trials, obedience brings clarity and faith, increases our faith. And it's followed with understanding. Um, turn with me to James chapter 1. And we see the same kind of teaching going on, but this time with regard to trials. James says in chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, having confidence that God is doing something, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then if you're looking at the text here, verse 5 is not a change of subject. He's he's not saying, oh, and in addition, let me go talk to you about something else. No, in the midst of this trial where where you're counting it joy and you're wondering why, he says, and if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, 
and it will be given to him. Wisdom will be given, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And isn't that so true? If you're asking God, why in the world have you brought this to me, but it's not in faith that God is good, that God is exhaustively sovereign, then it's like being on a ship being tossed to and fro. There's, there's no stability. It's why, God, why are you doing this to me? But if you don't know why God has given this to you, but in faith, knowing that he is good, knowing that he is sovereign, knowing that it has a particular and perfect plan laid out for you, that that trial that was been given to you was handpicked by God for you. And you ask for wisdom why, in faith, he says he's going to lead you into that wisdom. He's going to lead you into that wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And time and again, trials actually bring us great wisdom into who God is, how he is instructing and leading us, how we are to call upon him and rest in him in ways we had never thought of doing before. And I think going back to this passage, what we begin to see is that when trials come to us, it's a signal from God to love and serve others. It's a signal from God to actually forget about yourself, to stop thinking about yourself, and instead to turn and serve others, others who may be in trials, others who may be in difficulty, others who may need to your love. But that's going to require confidence. That's going to require the kind of confidence that Jesus has hours before he's going to be betrayed, arrested, and hung on a cross, that God is good, and God has, has sovereign purposes for all the trials that are about to go in Jesus' life. You're going to need that confidence in order to receive that kind of wisdom and that kind of rest in the midst of your circumstances. So we're given a strong clue then to, what, to what's going on with, with, with these questions that, 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 Jesus, or that Peter is asking and that Jesus says, um, what I'm doing you do not understand, but you will know after this, and what the whole point of the foot washing is. When Jesus says, if you do not wash, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And so this washing has is, is got to be connected to, his, to, to receiving his initial cleansing of justification by faith and see and then the ongoing cleansing work of sanctification. In verse 10, he says, uh, Jesus says, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And then in, uh, you look ahead here to chapter 15 for just a moment. He says in chapter 15, verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so the word of God, the word of Christ received by faith is our justification. The, the word of Christ, the work of Christ, his declaration of who he is, and our faith in that is by the means by which we receive our justification. And then this ongoing cleansing then takes place is the ongo this, this washing of the feet is that ongoing cleansing work of sanctification. As we continue to walk through life as disciples, our feet get dirty. We stumble into sin. We forget God. We need cleansing. And so we're told time and again that we must go before him and seek forgiveness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, you heard verse 9 this morning earlier. But verse 8 says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's, it's kind of like saying if we say that we've walked around barefoot or just in sandals as they did in that day, if we walked around all day in sandals and it's been a muddy, dusty, dirty road, which they were, and now I've come into a house, if we say that we do not have dirty feet, we deceive ourselves. That's, that's what they're saying. If you say that you have no sin, that, there, that there's no sin for you to confess... You're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself. The heart is deceitfully wicked. We do need to continually come before God, confess our sins, and, and receive that forgiveness. So verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, and I've said this to you before, but here's your Greek lesson, to confess is hamalageo, to say the same thing. To say the same thing. Okay, so when I confess my sin, what I'm doing is I'm agreeing with God 
that that is sin, that it's breaking his law, and that there's judgment because of it. And I'm recognizing that Christ died for that sin. And as I recognize that Christ died for that sin, I confess it, I, I, I agree with you, that was sin, God. We we're promised in First, uh, First John 1, 9, which Jesus practices for his disciples by washing their feet. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us right before him again, to make us holy before him again, to set us back on a path with clean feet again, to walk for him. So we must be born again. And, and remember, Jesus telling Nicodemus that he, to be born again, he was to be born of water and the Spirit, back in John chapter 3, verse 5. Water, that is the Spirit. Water, that is the Spirit. Water and Spirit, I, I think these are to be connected and understood together. And we must be born again, and we must continue in having a part with Christ through our ongoing walk with Him. The, the, the work of justification makes us a kind of people that want to pursue sanctification. In other words, if you're a Christian, you're not going to live a perfect life. But if you are a Christian, you are going to desire to live a perfect, a holy life before God. And you're going to constantly, as, uh, as Martin Luther said, live a life of repentance, of constant repentance, of constant confession of sin. Of wanting, to be, of wanting to draw near to Christ and not draw near to the Father through Christ and be cleansed, be comforted, be encouraged, be taught, be, re, be set back on the path. There, there's, in, in other words, for some of you, what you need to hear is there's nothing to be ashamed about if you have dirty feet. Unless you're unwilling to acknowledge you have dirty feet and that you need those feet cleansed. There's really nothing to be ashamed about as, as we come to, to our time of confession and you have sins to confess. Hopefully, this is instructing you every day and every night to confess your sins, to confess them as quickly as they come to your mind, in fact, to confess your sins because as you do so, you'll be forgiven and you'll be cleansed from all unrighteousness. There's no shame in coming to Jesus and confessing sin. There's shame in coming to Jesus and refusing to acknowledge your sin, to justify your sin, to point the finger at others. That's where you should be ashamed. And interestingly, that's the time that we're not ashamed. And that's when you should be ashamed. But there's no shame in coming to receive forgiveness. So Peter was looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, what are you doing washing my feet? There's, there's a little twist that could go there. Peter could be saying something like, no, I'm supposed to be clean before you. I should wash your feet. I should be honoring you. And, and Jesus is saying, you know what, Peter? You need me. You need me, my cleansing blood. You need my cleansing forgiveness. You need the work of sanctification that I will be giving you. Peter says, well, then wash my hands and my head. Wash it all. Jesus said, no, no, you're clean. We're good. You're, you're right with me, but we're going to have to take care regularly of your dirty feet, of your sin. So, Jesus cleansed and Jesus cleans us. And we're not able to do either ourselves. He does the initial cleansing and he does the ongoing cleansing. And any ritual devoid of sincere faith is of no value. Jesus washed Judas' feet that evening. Jesus washed Judas' feet. And it says in verse 2 that, he, we, he already knew that the devil had put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus knew this. When he says to Peter that he's clean, he says in verses 10 and 11, he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Actually, he says there, y'all are clean. He's not just speaking to Peter. Y'all are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. There is a way to have been washed and not be clean. That's what Jesus is pointing to. There is a way to be identified as a cleansed one and not be clean. And, and that's an example. The Judas is that example. Um, Richard Phillips in his commentary says this. It's, it's worth listening to. It is remarkable that Jesus washed Judas's feet along with others. 
He thus exemplified his command to love our enemies. This also means that when Judas departed to meet with the chief priests and Pharisees who plotted Jesus' death, hatching his plan to betray Jesus with a kiss, he went with feet that had been washed by Jesus' hands. How many people are like that today? They enjoy the benefit of participation in the church or of fellowship with God's people. Their hearts are temporarily lightened by singing songs of praise or by listening to prayers. But their guilt is never washed away. And their souls are never renewed for the simple reason that they refuse to humble themselves before the cross of Christ. How dirty was Judas's guilty soul? How black was his record before God as he passed into condemnation? How quickly his feet became dirty again as he walked through the garden of Gethsemane to betray the Son? But that's not all that Jesus taught, not just that he had to serve, not just that he had to humble himself, not just that he was the only one who could wash feet, but that his people would do it as well, that his people would do the same kind of one anothering as well. Verses 12 through 16, Jesus, when he finished, sat down and said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, y'all also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So Jesus is a teacher and Lord, as he does, as he, as he says that to him, as he says that to him, them, it is a claim to his deity and lordship even there. He says, so I am, I am Lord. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, teaches that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It ends in that passage by saying, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord, in Hebrew, Yahweh, for passage from the Old Testament, for whoever calls on the name of Yahweh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. So when Jesus says, I am your teacher and Lord, you say that, and so I am, He's saying, you are confessing that I am, in fact, the Christ. I am, in fact, Lord. I am, in fact, God. And this is important because I want you to notice that he never relinquishes his authority. He is not setting aside his authority. Instead, he teaches what godly leadership, what godly authority looks like. And this contradicts the impulses of the flesh to use power and authority to give ourselves special perks and privileges. And the fight against this in our day and age is a fight for egalitarianism because the flesh fights against the use, the misuse of power in order to privilege oneself. We have this, we have this idea that therefore nobody should be in authority. There should be no hierarchy. But that's not true at all. God establishes all kinds of hierarchies in, in, in terms of society. But those who are in places of authority, in places of leadership, are put there in places of leadership in the same way that Jesus was placed in a position of leadership. And that was to serve those um, that he was, that was over, to take responsibility for those he was over, to, uh, to use his place of power and authority to make the lives of those under him better. Godly leadership, whether in the home or in the church or in the civil realm, or in any institution, man or God made where there, is this, where there are hierarchies, wields an authority, if it's godly leadership, it wields an authority that seeks the good of others. That's what the authority is for. With confidence in his Father's plan, Christ's focus is neither on his promised blessings nor his imminent sufferings, which he knows are right before him. Instead, his focus is in the Father's love and his love for his people. I'm in a place of authority, and that grants me the opportunity to serve. That puts me in a place to be able to serve. And so he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So just as it was the characteristic of Christ, so it is to be of his church, his bride, his body. Some 
some traditions have actually um, added an ordinance of, uh, actually, an ordinance of foot washing, where there's a, a particular Sunday or a particular evening, oftentimes during the Passion Week, where there's a washing of one another's feet trying to uh, imitate or follow this. I don't think that's what the passage is, is, is talking about, going through some kind of ritual with one another. I think there's something far deeper that is, that is being taught here to us, to God's people. And, and that ordinance was, was, was never uh, broadly um, considered. We never see it being practiced in the New Testament, nor in the early church. Um, it, I, I think that the ordinance is, uh, is misapplying what Jesus is, is actually teaching. What Jesus is actually teaching is, is giving honor, providing hospitality, Serving, serving even when it costs you, um, even when it puts you in a place of, of humility. So um, we're, to dis- we're to demonstrate a love to one another that loves to the end. A love for one another that loves to the end, that costs all the way to the end. Now, our love is not salvific. We cannot provide the kind of cleansing that Jesus provides. Our love is not salvific, but it imitates his salvific love. It imitates that salvific love in the, in, the, in the sense that it provides, it efficaciously does something. Husbands who love their wives like Christ loved the church, they, they love their wives in such a way that she becomes more lovely. She becomes more Christ-like. Um, in, in a similar way, wives who submit to the Father's will in the same way that... Um, that Christ submits to the, the Father's will and submitting to that will lives in submission to her husband can make that husband more respectable, can make her husband more honoring, more honorable, can make her husband even turn to the Lord in ways that nobody else can. These are these, are these different ways that in our stations, serving one another in the, in the places that God has given to us efficaciously changes those around us. That's just... That's just part of the example, some examples of, of the way that works. Remember, said Peter, Peter didn't understand what Jesus was doing, and, and then Jesus said, there will, be, there will come a time um, when you will. He says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Well, I think Peter got it. As Peter talks about it in his epistle. Peter later came to understand when trials are increasing, when trials are increasing, it is all the more time to have fervent love for one another. For love, he says, will cover a multitude of sins and to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. In 1 Peter 4, why don't we turn there? 1 Peter 4, Peter is writing to the, dis- the, dispers- the, the dispersion, this, the, the, the number of, uh, of disciples of Christ who have been dispersed because of persecution and, because of, and now he's warning them of great persecution that is about to take place in their day. There's a fiery trial, he says, that you are about to endure. And, and because there's a fiery trial that you're about to endure, you need to think about others. That's, that's going to be the message that comes out here. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. Get your mind off yourself in the trials, and instead now have fervent love for one another. And he says, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Do trite little things of caring for one another because trials are coming. And do so without grumbling. Why should I take care of serving these people right now? I've got a lot of problems in my life. I got a lot of things I've got to deal with, right? I'll worry about them later. No, Peter says that's exactly the time to double down like Jesus and give yourself away all the more. He goes on, and you see how the, the same message is coming out here. Even, even you need to see that you've been given particular gifts. When we, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we're given gifts to the Holy Spirit. We're all, we have, and these gifts are given to us, not for us, but to administer to one another, to give to one another. So he says, um, verse 9 again, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the midst of suffering, 
coming persecutions, difficulties, what do you need to do? Double down on your love for one another. Build, another way it might be to say it, maybe in, in common parlance or in, uh, in modern terms, build community. Look out for one another. You're going to need one another more than you realize. Remember, Jesus is washing their feet just days before his crucifixion. What's, where, where are they going to all end up? They're all going to flee from Jesus and hide. They, they can't be found. Resurrection comes place. They see him. A few times they're with Jesus during the 40 days. But by the time the Holy Spirit comes, they are, they're hiding out. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. They know that the guys that killed Jesus are going to be looking for them. And certainly days after that, even after days after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what begins to happen. The persecution of the church begins. Jesus washes their feet and says, I want you to remember this because you're going to need to do this to one another. This is the way you build the kind of community that will take over the world, that will stand against evil and that will bring light in dark places. So, wash one another's feet. This corresponds to a fervent love for one another. A fervent love for one another and showing hospitality, giving yourself and your stuff away, bringing people in to bless them with the things God has given you. And especially, especially when it's inconvenient. If you don't walk away with anything else tonight or today, what I'd like you to walk away with is this idea. This idea. Okay, the next time I'm in pain, the next time a new trial has hit me, the next time I'm disturbed about something, that's a flag. A flag should go up. Who should I be serving? How do I get my mind off myself and now turn and serve one another? Give myself away to others. Because what are you going to be, what, what is your flesh going to do when there's pain? What is your flesh going to do when you have a new disturbance? What's your flesh going to do when there's a new trial, tribulation? It's going to think about, oh, Mr. Important, right? And that puts you on a path of great misery, of great selfishness. So the next time there's a trial, the next time a trial, there's a little flag comes up. You remember Jesus washing feet. And you look out away from yourself. You say, who can I serve? What has God put before me to serve others? So later in, in, in uh, 1335, Jesus says, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we do this, when we do this in our families, when we do this in the community of the church, we will look so different than the rest of the world. And they will want to know, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that? So what should the church look like then? Well, I did this. I did a brief scan through the New Testament, and I looked for all the one another's. I have none of this. I don't have the scripture verses here uh, referenced, but here they all are. You can go and find them yourself. Here are the one another's. We're to be kindly affectionate to one another. We are to be giving preference to one another. We're to be of the same mind toward one another. We're not to be judging one another with regard to secondary issues. We're not to we're be receiving one another as Christ received us, like with dirty feet. We're to admonish one another. We're to greet one another. We're to be waiting for one another at the Lord's table. We're to be serving one another. We're to be bearing with one another, putting up with one another. Pack that one away. We're to be speaking to one another with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. That's the way we're supposed to speak. <laughs> we're to be submitting to one another. We're to be forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave us. We're to be comforting one another. We're to be edifying one another. We're to be exhorting one another. We're to be confessing trespasses to one another. Confess your sins to one another. We're to have compassion on one another. We're to be hospitable to one another, and we're to minister our gifts to one another. Hardship just came. Trial just came. Disturbance just came. Which one another are you to put in place now? That's the flag. Which one another? Where do I put it? This is what unconditional love looks like, agape love. This is what the love of Christ for us looks like, and this is the love that we are supposed to imitate. This is the love that's supposed to be sanctifying us, changing us. 
This is unconditional love. It's not conditioned on our circumstances. I'll get to it later after I take care of... No, no, no. Your circumstances have nothing to do with this love. And, and this kind of love is not based on the merits of the people that you are loving. Why should I love him? Look what he did to me. Why should I love her? Look at the way she's acting. Why should I do that? Agape love is unconditional love, love that is not based on circumstances, love that is not based on the merits of the one that you are turning to love. Where do I learn this? I learned this from Jesus who loved you just that way, just exactly that way, not based on any merit of your own and not based on his circumstances. Jesus is about to leave. He's about to go be with the Father. You don't need to bother with the disciples anymore. He takes up a towel and washes their feet. You see that? And for all this to happen, for this to happen for us, we are going to need three things. First of all, a disposition of humility and lowliness. Where will I get that? Jesus gives it. You will not find it in yourself. You do not have a disposition of lowliness. You do not have a disposition of humility. Your flesh doesn't have that. Only the Spirit of God grants it. But you must have that. If we are to be a people that people see how we love one another. You must have a disposition of humility and lowliness. Secondly, you have to have a willingness to be served. Like there's, there's, something, there's something shameful sometimes about receiving a gift from somebody. There, there's something that is humbling about needing the service of others. But we need one another. I mean, that's what's, that's what's just as clear as, as day. We're not to live our lives as hermits. We're not to hide our needs from others. We are to to be a part of a body that knows how to minister to one another, and we're to be prepared to receive that as as, as opportunity comes. And then third, we need to have a heart towards the sanctification of others. We as a church together need to understand that we together are used by God to help others become more like Christ in the way that we serve, in the way that we forgive, in the way that we bear with in the way that we are patient, in the way that we admonish, in the way that we teach. We are being used by God to make others more like Christ along with us. We must, of course, bear our own burdens first. So when you see the, the needs or, or you need to admonish or teach someone else, you need to plank, take, take the plank out of your own eye first, almost always. But then Jesus instructs and Matthew, having taken the plank out of your eye, then you turn and you look to see what you can do to remove the speck from somebody else with those one another's. Okay, so here is, the, here is the application for 2023 and for the church. Um, the, uh, look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, you can take that and think about that and, and, uh, and apply it personally, and you should. But when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking um, um, with, in, in the plural, Um, He is speaking to the disciples as a company of disciples, like I'm going to speak to you now, not just individually, but to the company of the church. I now have two daughters-in-law who are both from Texas, and so they understand this. Actually, this verse says, if y'all know this, if y'all know these things, blessed are y'all, if y'all do them. Here's my application. We are entering a year where the church will be tested in harsher ways. I'm sure of it. We're entering a year where the church and the declaration of Jesus Christ and his, his being the only way and his teaching the only true truth is about to be tested in ways I don't think we've seen before, not, not in our generation, not in our lives. Jesus knew what his disciples were about to face, and he knows what we are about to face. Phillips again says this, he says, the cross is both the way of salvation and the key to community. In Rod Dreher's book, uh, Live Not By Lies, he says, the key to withstanding an onslaught of tyranny is the buildup, particular buildup of two communities, family and church. Family and church. And how is family and church built up? Through the one another's. Through the one another's. 
So this principle of washing one another's feet must be more strongly applied in the community of family and then in the church in order to build a strong defense for the kingdom and a powerful tool to evangelize in the darkness. They will notice if we love one another this way. And note, Christ's eyes were fixed on heaven and the task before him. Christ knew where he was going. Christ knew the Father, but that did, it, you, you think he was so heavenly minded that he wasn't even thinking about the earth, right? No, he was so heavenly minded that gave him the cons- confidence to take care of the things of the earth, to take care of the people here. That heavenly vision drove him to a fervent love for his disciples. And so it is to be for us, for we are his disciples as well. These one another's, this love, as I said, contradicts the circumstances. It contradicts the circumstances. And your flesh will not do this. This love is spirit wrought. It is the love of Jesus at work in you. Is the love of Jesus at work in you? If not, then call upon him in faith. And be done with your sin and your rebellion. And be done with thinking that you can merit your own life, your own salvation, your own way. Be done with it. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Be done with it and turn to him, receive the love of Christ, and then live that love of Christ with us. It is the love of Jesus at work in you, and it will hurt. The love of Jesus at work in you will hurt. It may even break you. But imitating Jesus, for we have come to Jesus, is the way that the church will not falter in times of trial, but instead will flourish. And may God have mercy upon us, equip us for what is ahead, what is before us as the church here in Woodenville in 2023 and all over the world as God uses his church to bring light to the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, make us like Jesus. Let us be washed by Jesus, cleansed and set right before you. Let us go into this new year with our eyes set upon Jesus, willing to take up our cross and follow him, empowered by him to love like him, to create strong families, shored up to love, protect, and nurture one another for generations, to build up this body of the church by serving one another with the gifts you have given us, and in doing so, keep one another faithful to you and used by you to bring many more into this glorious and good faith and wonderful salvation that is ours in Christ. For we pray in his name. And amen.